you still need to consider whether that is an ordinary dealing. Because at the end of the day, you've still got a beneficiary who's presently entitled, who hasn't received the benefit of their distribution. And the longer the period of time that passes where they don't receive the benefit of their distribution, then the greater the likelihood that the ATO would have concerns about it. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to update 35 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. Sorry for interrupting our usual schedule for this update, but Section 100A is just a very hot topic at the moment. There seem to be a lot of pain points out there. You have sent quite a few queries about ordinary family and commercial dealings, and also I got one query about loss trusts. At the upcoming tax summit in Melbourne, it has or had, depending on when you listen to this, Section 100A has not just one, but two sessions purely about Section 100A. So I wanted to squeeze this update in rather than go to the end of the pipeline to give you a quicker answer to your questions and hopefully relieve some of those pain points you have written about. Now, you have to consider Section 100A every time you see a trust distribution being made, but you don't have to worry about it when these trust distributions get swiftly paid out to the presently entitled beneficiary and are not loaned or gifted back or paid to somebody else. When there is no funny business, then Section 100A won't be an issue or most likely won't be an issue. Never say never. But if trust distributions don't get paid out and you have a long-term UPE, an unpaid present entitlement, or they do get paid out but then get loaned or gifted back to the trust or somebody else, then you do have to worry about Section 100A. Yes, you might be able to defend the UPE pointing to ordinary family or commercial dealings, but it gets a lot more complicated. So let's ask Robin Jacobson of the Tax Institute about these ordinary family or commercial dealings, lost trust and a few other things. So let's look at five things with her that often come up. Under number one, let's look at the general rules, the conditions for Section 100A to apply and look especially at ordinary family and commercial dealings. So basically, let's set the scene. Then under number two, let's look at working capital, meaning you keep the money in the trust to fund the business within the trust. Then at number three, let's look at distributing income from a profit trust to a loss trust. Then under number four, to what extent can you distribute income that is earmarked for school or uni fees? And then at number five, boring but necessary, what do you have to do with respect to record keeping of trust distributions, UPEs, payments, etc.? What do you have to do with respect to record keeping to keep section 100A as far away from you as possible? That's the plan for this update. So here's Robin Jacobson of the Tax Institute. Section 100A, we had a new TR, we had a new PCG in 2022. Section 100A is actually relatively straightforward. It just gets very complicated in a few areas. Do you agree? No, I don't agree. I think it's a particularly difficult provision. It's a provision that's been around for more than 40 years and it was introduced into legislation in a different era the late 70s when tax schemes and trust stripping was a focus of the government of the day. 
the provisions are virtually unchanged from when they were introduced in 1979 and with effect since 1978. And over the years, we've had few decisions, few court cases that have dealt with them. And those that have addressed 100A through the courts have been what many would describe as the more egregious kind. So certainly in respect of cases such as Idlecroft or Raftland, arguably these cases could have been subject to the cross-loss provisions or potentially Part 4A, that they were successfully argued by the ATO under 100A. So the point that we reached last year was that after decades of minimal guidance published by the ATO on their understanding of how the provision works, combined with few court cases, and those that we did see were of the more egregious kind, combined with perhaps not just a lack of understanding by the tax profession, but even a lack of awareness of the provision. I think most practitioners haven't appreciated the scope of what 100A can do. And this all reached ahead in February 2022, when of course the draft package was released for public comment. Throughout 2022, there were multiple opportunities for consultation, which the Tax Institute and other professional associations involved themselves in. And I think it's fair to say that the final package of guidance that was issued by the ATO in December of 2022 is in better shape than when it was first published in draft at the beginning of last year. But certainly when we look at the tax ruling 2022-4 and the practical compliance guideline 2022-2, these are going to continue to evolve. And we know at the moment that following the recent decisions in Guardian and B Blood, and I'm happy to talk to those cases if you wish, the ATO is now taking on board those decisions, one of which went in favour of the ATO under Part 4A, and the other one went in favour of the ATO under 100A. So slightly different outcomes in terms of which provisions were relied upon, but ultimately successful for the commissioner. And the ATO is reviewing these documents in light of those decisions to see if updates need to be made. I'd expect there'll be further cases in the pipeline. I'm not aware of any specific ones at this point, but litigation is in play and that will play out over the months and the years ahead. Number one. The conditions that trigger Section 100A to apply and the much-discussed ordinary family and commercial dealings. So in terms of where we now sit, certainly there is an awakening. There is a greater awareness that the profession has of 100A and its scope. The particularly complex part of it, if you look at the, if you like, the conditions or the triggers for 100A to kick in, you need a beneficiary who is presently entitled to a share of trust income who was not under a legal disability. Now, I agree with you in that respect. That's generally pretty straightforward to determine if a beneficiary is presently entitled and they're not under a legal disability. So in most cases, that's assumed and we just move on to the next condition. The next is that there must be a reimbursement agreement. And that has got nothing to do with the word reimbursement. It essentially means that there is an agreement or an understanding or arrangement in place between parties whereby someone other than the beneficiary is being provided with benefits. So this might be in the form of property, it could be the provision of services, transfer of an asset, and essentially, its very essence, you're looking at the separation of the profit, the income of the trust, versus the cash. That's very simple terms. And so what 100A does is when you have a reinvestment agreement in place that precedes the present entitlement arising, 
and the two exclusions do not apply, and it's important to run through these two exclusions, that you can end up with 100A applying. Now, the first exclusion is what we loosely call the tax purpose. It's not actually a requirement of 100A that there be a tax purpose, like in Part 4A where there's a sole or dominant purpose for entering into the arrangement. It operates as an exclusion. So an agreement is not subject to 100A if there isn't the purpose of reducing or deferring someone's income tax liability. So I feel like it's a double negative. So an agreement is not caught where there isn't a tax purpose. So if you want to put that into a practical term, yes, if there is a tax purpose, then you essentially trigger that particular requirement. Then you've got the fourth one, which is by far the most complicated. And this is where the arrangement is what is termed an ordinary family or commercial dealing. This has not been particularly explored in any depths by the courts. If I think about all the 100A cases we've had over the years, most of them have touched on other aspects of 100A. They didn't unpack or delve into this particular exception. But it's the one that most practitioners and taxpayers think that their client or their own arrangements fall within. Now, I think it's fair to say that when you have an ordinary dealing, the taxpayer's interpretation of the word ordinary is probably not the same as the ATO's. And the ATO has made it clear that just because something is commonly done or just because everybody does it, doesn't make it ordinary. It's got to be examined in the context of what has been undertaken. So, for example, you could have five or eight separate steps that in their own right are perfectly acceptable under the tax law. You start to string them together. The question has to be asked, why was it so complex? Why were there so many moving pieces? Could you have achieved the same commercial objective without regard to tax if you had eliminated a number of those steps? It's like circumstantial evidence in a criminal court. Each evidence on its own is nothing. But when you put them all together, even if you don't have a body and you don't have a weapon, but with all those evidence together, it becomes a strong body of evidence. So it's basically like that. I hesitate to draw parallels between criminal law and tax law because they're such completely different forms of, of law. But it's important that if you've got a, a scheme in place, and I, I take the reblood recent full federal court decision as an example, uh, without unpacking all of the transactions that were undertaken, broadly there was a share buyback, which was uh, undertaken, so you had the shareholder being the trust, having its shares bought back in exchange for a buyback price. Given it was an off-market share buyback, the amount is treated effectively as a dividend for tax purposes. And so you end up with a, a high accessible amount being the buyback price, and we're up in the millions of dollars here. The deed was amended to make the trust income what it would be under normal trust law principles, we're no longer adopting what had been in the deed, which was an equalisation clause. So in other words, previously the deed would have said in this particular case, the trust income is equal to whatever the taxable income is. And that would have been high given the amount of taxable income resulting from the buyback transaction. By amending the deed and then saying the trust income is only what it is for trust law purposes, they're able to effectively convert for trust law purposes that amount of income into capital. 
Now, the taxable income still went to a corporate beneficiary where the tax purposes, the level of franking credits associated with it meant there was no additional tax to pay. Meanwhile, the trust that made that distribution to the corporate beneficiary was able to effectively retain the trust income, but in doing so also retain that trust capital on a tax-free basis. Now, individually, these steps, you can do, undertake a buyback. You can amend your deed. You can make a distribution to a corporate beneficiary. But in that short period of time, why all those steps in that particular order? Why did they amend the deed? And it's not to say that there wouldn't have been a 100A problem in the absence of amending the deed. That's something we'll never know. It's a hypothetical. But my point is that when you're looking at whether 100A applies, you need to look at all the arrangements, all the steps in play. And even if one can be explicable in its own right, as part of a broader transaction or broader arrangement, why was it undertaken in this manner? That was the B-blood case. That's the B-blood decision, yes. Uh, another example, if you have a distribution made to an adult beneficiary and they are on a lower marginal tax rate than another beneficiary, then as from a tax perspective, which one would you distribute to? Now, solely looking at the tax situation, trustees are inclined to distribute to the one who's on the lower marginal tax rate. Now, 100A will have no application if the beneficiary is made presently entitled to an amount of trust income and that UPE, the unpaid present entitlement, is satisfied. In other words, the distribution is made for their own benefit. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that beneficiary on the lower marginal tax rate then gifts or lends the amount to the person who's on the higher marginal tax rate, then the question really should be asked, what was the ultimate objective here? Because if the objective was to get the funds into the hands of the person on the higher marginal tax rate, why did you not just distribute to them in the first place? And the logical answer is because more tax would have been paid. So this is what 100A is designed to stop. An arrangement where a beneficiary is made presently entitled, that they ultimately don't receive or don't retain the benefit of that distribution or it's going to someone else. And where there is a tax purpose involved, I think if you reversed it, so if it went to a person on a high marginal tax rate, e.g. a parent who then gifted the amount to their child who was on a much lower tax rate, 100A would really have no work to do here because there's no tax benefit. But if it's going to a person on a lower marginal tax rate, who then gifts it to a person on a higher marginal tax rate, that's where 100A starts to kick in. So the real complexity that everyone in the profession is grappling with is trying to understand, firstly, what is a reimbursement agreement and identifying the point that it's entered into, because if it is entered into after the present entitlement is created, then 100A doesn't apply. You've got to have the reimbursement agreement in place before the present entitlement arises. And then secondly, try to identify that tax purpose. And thirdly, trying to understand the meaning of what's an ordinary family or commercial dealing. When every family and every small business is going to have different reasons for doing what they do. The difficulty is the ATO can't review everybody. I haven't got the resources to audit everyone in the country. And that's why they've issued this practical compliance guideline. And its purpose is to give guidance to the community where they are likely to devote their compliance resources. So it's really important to understand that the PCG is not an interpretation of the law and it doesn't spell out 
the high or the low risk of 100A itself applying. It indicates whether you have a high or a low risk, the red or the green zone, of the ETO allocating compliance resources to review your arrangement. Now, they've indicated in the PCG there is a two-year rule of thumb. So if a distribution is paid out within two years of it being created, then generally the ETO is not going to devote compliance resources to looking at that. It's considered low risk from their perspective. But let me give you two contrasting examples. If you have an individual who's made presently entitled, it's paid out within two years, then they gifted or lended in the circumstances I described a short time ago, then just because it's paid out within two years doesn't mean that 100A can't apply. Conversely, if a beneficiary receives their distribution, say, three years after it arose, and there was some commercial reason why the cash flow wasn't available at the time in the trust and it came out after three years, not within two years, but they get to keep that distribution and it's not passed on to anybody else, then really there should be no application of 100A in that situation. So the two-year rule of thumb is not a, an indication of whether 100A will or won't apply. It's an indication of whether the ATO is likely to review the arrangement. Number two, working capital. You don't pay out a distribution, but keep the money in the trust as working capital. The ordinary family or commercial dealings exclusion you mentioned before, that is really whether there's an ordinary family or commercial reason why the UPE wasn't paid out quicker, correct? It's why it wasn't paid out promptly. It's what happened to the funds in the meantime. Now, the ATO accepts that there may be situations where you have, for example, a corporate beneficiary, and the corporate beneficiary then agrees to lend the amount representing the UPE back to the trust for working capital. And we've seen this debate many times play out in a Division 7A context. Now, where the loan from the corporate beneficiary back to the trust is being managed as a complying Division 7A loan, then the ATO would probably regard that as being of lower risk because you're addressing the Div 7A implications. But this working capital loan back to the trust, that only applies to a corporate beneficiary. It doesn't apply to an individual beneficiary. That's what you're saying, correct? No, I'm not saying that. You could have an individual beneficiary who, let's say, runs the business through their discretionary trust. And for cash flow reasons, for working capital, to buy stock or to invest in plant and equipment or whatever it is they want to use the funds for, they may think it's the prudent commercial decision to not draw their own undrawn entitlement out, to leave those amounts undrawn for the business's use. And again, the ATO has accepted that there may be situations where that's not 100A. And this working capital concession, if I may call it a concession, that only applies if you run a business through the trust. Correct. So, for example, if you have an investment trust and you just want to buy more BHP shares or something, then you couldn't pull the working capital excuse. The ATO does state in their guidance that's working capital for a business or for investment. But again, I'm going to caveat that by saying you'd need to look at the facts and circumstances. So if someone is not involved in the activity, in other words, they're a beneficiary of the trust, but they're not directly involved in running the business or in making any of the investment decisions, I think it's getting harder to demonstrate why this is an ordinary dealing. Whereas if you've got an individual who is running the business, or if it's purely an investment trust, but they want to leave the funds undrawn because they think it would be a, a greater pool of funds available in the trust to go and invest and get better returns, then that may be something that would be considered ordinary. 
the okay. challenge, of course, for the profession is trying to identify what's ordinary. So that means as long as the cash stays within the trust, distribution is declared to, to Johnny and Johnny has no use for the money right now apart from spending it. So he decides better stays in the trust and is reinvested to buy more shares or something. That would be perfectly fine. As long as the cash stays within the trust, there is no issue. The problem is, though, that as long as you have these UPEs, it means you can't give the money to somebody else. Before you want to loan money out to somebody else out of the trust, you would first have to pay off the UPEs because otherwise you will have a Section 100A problem. It's not as black and white as that. When you look at what is a tax purpose under these provisions, the fact that the trustee is retaining the amount and not paying out the UPE is itself a tax purpose because if the trustee needed the money, you could argue, well, why do they even distribute to the beneficiary? Because they would be on, of course, marginal rates as opposed to the top marginal rate, which would be the case if the trustee were assessed under 99A where they retain it. So almost any time there isn't retention of the original distribution and you're going to a beneficiary, it could be argued there is a tax purpose. So that's why the exemption for the ordinary family or commercial dealing is so important. And unfortunately with this provision, there aren't black and white rules to say this is in and that's out. We can't draw a line in the sand to say in all cases, this will be the outcome. It's just that the more ordinary the transaction, the better the explanation you can give, the fewer steps that are involved in what you've undertaken, the more likely it is that the ATO won't review it and the less likely it is that 100A would be applied. But unfortunately, it's one of these provisions that it's very grey. And if we contrast it to Division 7A, you know what a complying loan agreement is. You know your benchmark rate, your repayments, your term, and it's very easy to identify whether someone has or has not complied with those requirements. 100A is so much more difficult than that. Because the argument you just brought is saying, you know, if if the trustee needs the money, for example, to run the business, then they should have retained it and had the trustee pay top margin and tax rate. If you bring that argument, then the working capital excuse doesn't work at all because it means then, yes, if you need the money for working capital, then you should assess it to the trustee and keep it in the trust. Look, we know practically nobody wants to retain in the trust because of that high marginal tax rate under 99A. The ATO does accept that under trust law, of course, you can make distributions and it is the trustee's choice where they distribute and how much they give to a beneficiary. What we need to understand with 100A is whether the tax purpose or deferring or reducing tax has informed any decisions and have you entered into an arrangement in a way that would trigger 100A. So I'm not suggesting everyone must retain in a trust to avoid 100A. I'm not suggesting that at all. But it's important when you're looking at the working capital argument that it is a reasonable argument. And reading the ATO's tax ruling and also the PCG is a really good start. So for anyone who's not yet had a read of those and deals with trusts, it's important to be across that guidance. We also hope that over time, we do get a case that goes before the federal court, or indeed even higher, that does unpack this ordinary family or commercial dealing exemption because we really need to understand the scope, the breadth, and how it can apply in different circumstances. Just to, I know there's always if and when, and of course it depends on individual circumstances, but just as a rule of thumb, because I like rule of thumbs, basically you don't have a Section 100A issue if you pay out the distribution. If there's no UP and you pay out the distribution to the person and there's no gifting back, there's no loaning back, then 
you're fine. Or if you declare the distribution, but you keep it within the fund and then the fund, the trust, sorry, I shouldn't say the fund, but the trust keeps it either to as working capital for the business or keeps it for investment purposes, then it should be okay as long as you then don't pay the money to somebody else. Well, on the first one, I'd agree with you. If it's just a straight distribution to a beneficiary and it's paid out to them and they get to keep that benefit, then 100A has no work to do. On the working capital, you still need to consider whether that is an ordinary dealing because at the end of the day, you've still got a beneficiary who's presently entitled who hasn't received the benefit of their distribution. And the longer the period of time that passes where they don't receive the benefit of their distribution, then the greater the likelihood that the ATO would have concerns about it. So I know you like a rule of thumb, but sometimes in tax law, you can't have a rule of thumb. You've got to be careful. Okay. And, it, and and so it means it's it's a question of timing. If you leave the funds within the trust because the business just has a cash flow crunch and can't pay an important supplier at the moment and you leave the funds in there for another year or so, then you're fine. But if you leave the funds in there for the next 10 years, then it becomes an issue. That's what you're saying, correct? No, I'm not going to... Higher risk of being an issue. Higher risk, yes. So that was working capital. That can be one excuse under the ordinary family or commercial dealings. Another one in your notes says lost trust. Now, before we speak about distributing trust income to a trust that has accumulated and or current your losses, so income from a profit trust to a lost trust, before Robin talks about that, Here's a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Hi, my name's Diane. I'm an accountant and I'd like to make a confession. Last financial year, I seriously screwed up. I left my paperwork in a taxi. Yep, confidential contracts, tax file numbers. I was mortified. It's why this year, my accounting firm is using DocuSign. Going digital has saved us time, money, paperwork and stress. Make no mistake. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. Number three, distributing income from a trust with income to a trust with accumulated or current year losses, so-called loss trusts. Loss trust. Can you elaborate what you mean with that? All right. So if you have a trust that makes a loss and another trust wants to distribute into that loss trust, we know that if certain conditions are met, that is possible within the tax law. And I'm referring to family trust election. So Schedule 2F to the 36 Act sets out all the very complex rules about the recoupment of a loss in a trust and when income can be injected into it or the benefit of a loss being applied against income will be undertaken. Now, the ATO has indicated in its guidance that if there is a group and they talk about a family group within the meaning of the trust loss provisions, that a profit trust could distribute into a loss trust, soak up the losses, that again, they would expect the two-year rule to be heeded. So 100A, look, whether it would or would not apply, it's a completely different set of rules to the trust loss provisions, so that's important to note. But if the distribution is paid out to the loss trust within two years, the ATO would consider that a low risk of allocating compliance resources to it. So again, there's no definitive answer on whether 100A would apply, but less likely to where there is a distribution of that kind going into a lost trust. Now, if the amount is not paid out for years and years or is not paid out ever, 
then again, I think the ATO would probably want to ask some questions around, well, why did you distribute to that trust if you never intended to pay it? Now, saying that the amount is able to be recouped through the trust loss provisions is a different argument. That's about whether or not the loss can be recouped. That's different to whether or not 100A should apply to the trustee that made the distribution in the first place. I am hazy on Schedule F, etc., so I feel a little bit nervous asking this. But basically, when you are a trust, you can distribute to anybody as long as the trustee allows you to. So if you want to, you can distribute to this other trust that makes losses as long as the trustee allows you to. That is not an issue. The issue is if you distribute to this other trust that makes a loss, but you don't pay out the distribution. Correct? That is the issue. I want to go back a step because there is potentially an issue with what you said at the start of that. You can only distribute to someone who is within the class of beneficiaries as set out in the trust deed, number one. Number two, if the trust has made a family trust election or an interposed entity election, if it distributes outside the family group of the individual who is specified in the family trust election, then family trust distribution tax is payable by the trustee of the distributing trust. So there's a few considerations before you even get to whether 100A might apply to a distribution between two trusts. Yes, but if you assume that this loss trust is uh, is an interposed, is, is listed within the trust deed, so I assume a trust, I'm really hazy on this, but I assume a trust can be an interposed entity. So, yes, it can. Perfect. So assuming that this loss trust has an interposed entity election, then this profit trust could distribute to the loss trust without any issues. The issue is if that distribution doesn't get paid or gets lost. Potentially. Correct? And again, it's a case of the compliance risk, which is separate from any risk of 100A applying. So if a distribution is made to a loss trust and it's paid within two years, the ATO would consider that low risk of allocating compliance resources to review it. So that was the second thing you listed in your in your notes. So now I just quickly need to look up what this third thing was. We had working capital, we had lost trust, and we had corporate beneficiaries. Yes. Number four, school and uni fees. So you can distribute income that is earmarked for school or university fees. Yeah, I just want to comment on the school fees and the uni fees because this is a common yes. question when it comes to 100A. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yes. School fees and uni fees. Uni fees are fine. School fees are, are a no-no, correct? Basically, yes. I have always had an issue with a trust paying the school fees and then effectively accruing that liability over the years so that when the child turns 18 and becomes a, a beneficiary who's no longer a minor, and you then make a, a much bigger distribution to them and taking advantage of their presumably lower marginal tax rate, they're probably at uni or on a low wage at that point, I have always questioned in whose name is the liability for the school fees. To my knowledge, I've never seen a school issue an invoice for school fees payable by the child. It's a contractual arrangement between the parents and the school. So my view is that it's the parents who have the liability, not the child. So therefore, when you've got a distribution that occurs when they say 18, 19, 20, and then you want to reduce that amount and effectively not pay them the physical cash because you say, oh, well, you owe us all this money for school fees over the last 15 years. Firstly, does the deed allow it? And secondly, I challenge whether it is the child's liability that they have incurred. I don't think it is. So yeah, I, I'm not comfortable with the idea of 
these school fees being paid for through trust distributions. Now, in terms of the uni fees, I think this is entirely different because let's say you're the trust and I'm the beneficiary and I'm 20 years of age and I'm attending university. I have a liability to pay the uni fees to the university. So they issue me with the invoice. Now, I can either just pay that myself out of my own funds or if I'm a beneficiary of a trust and I'm made presently entitled to, say, $50,000, if the deed allows it, I could direct the trustee to pay those fees on my behalf, the same way as I could direct it to pay for my car expenses or uh, my rent or other obligations I have. I think that is acceptable, and I don't think it attracts 100A, but I also just throw this into the mix. Isn't it just cleaner and easier if the distribution is paid to me as the beneficiary, I get my $50,000, I pay tax on the $50,000, and then I manage my own financial obligations. It teaches me how to manage liabilities. You don't have any confusion about whether 100A may or may not apply within the trust. So it's something that every family who is growing into these sorts of arrangements needs to think about. But for a 100A perspective, if it's done as cleanly as that, I direct the trustee to pay those expenses that I have incurred on my behalf. It's the same as constructive receipt. I'm basically saying instead of paying it to me directly, pay it to someone that I owe money to. I agree with you that it is much cleaner if the trust just pays out a lump sum and then the child deals with it, then absolutely nobody can raise the 100A flag. Yes. I'm happy to run through the record keeping. Do you think we need to run through Big Blood and Guardian in any more detail? I think we've maybe covered off on that. Yes, we have. Also, we, we did two separate episodes on Guardian and Blood Case. Good. Guardian was the washing machine arrangements where trust profit was distributed to a corporate beneficiary and then came as a frank dividend out to an overseas shareholder and basically then no further tax was paid. Yep. And B Blood, you, you mentioned it was the stock buyback. Correct. Yes, that's right. Number five, record keeping. What records do you need to keep about trust distributions, UPEs, and payments to keep Section 100A far away from you? What record keeping do you need to do in the very clear scenarios where it gets paid out and it doesn't come back? And what record keeping do you need when it is a lot more confusing and structured? So with record keeping, essentially the ATO will want trustees to be able to explain the reasons and the nature of the transactions. Now, let me be clear. There is no requirement to document the reason for the manner of the distribution. So no trustee has to justify why they've distributed to one beneficiary over another or why the amount was given. In fact, trustees should be careful about committing those sorts of reasons because it could open them up to challenges by the beneficiaries from a legal perspective. But certainly the ATO wants the trustee to be able to explain the arrangement. So let's take B-Blood as a live example. It's not so much why did you distribute to that beneficiary or why did you give them the amount, but what is the nature of the share buyback transaction? Why was the deed amended to change the character of the trust income from an amount that would have been included in trust income to an amount that ended up being part of trust capital? capital or corpus. So we need to be able to explain the transactions that have happened or the calculations that have been made. So this might be notes, it could be records of meetings or discussions, it could be loan agreements, might involve the trustee explaining to the beneficiary 
that they are presently entitled. Now, if you've got a beneficiary who's not even aware that they're presently entitled, they just asked to sign off a tax return, they've got no idea what it is. Uh, if there's no notification, if they can't explain how the funds were used, if it wasn't paid to the beneficiary, if it was paid to the beneficiary, what did they then do with the funds? These are the sorts of questions I think the ACO would be asking. So it's really just being able to explain the arrangement because the easier it is to explain, the less likely it is that the ATO would consider there is some other purpose that would give rise to 100A problems. Now, Robin, I have a different question for you. And that is, I think you lead a panel discussion about Section 100A next week at the Tech Summit in Melbourne. I guess that panel discussion is about practitioners grieving their vengeance and confusion regarding certain setups. You know, what will be discussed in this panel discussion? All right, we're certainly not looking for practitioners to uh, vent their grievances or anything like that. There are going to be two sessions run at Tax Summit next week, which is being held in Melbourne from the 5th to the 7th of September. And we're very excited about this. It's the first time we're hosting this wonderful event in Melbourne itself. Of course, in 2021, we had our lockdowns that prevented that from happening. So Frank Hanopoulos from Hall and Wilcox will be running through 100A and particularly looking at how it operates and the outcomes of the two recent federal, full federal court decisions we've had in Guardian and in B-Blood. I will then be hosting a or facilitating a panel session with Fiona Dillon, who's Chief Tax Counsel with the ATO, and Leanne Connor, who is Director of WGC Advisors and also one of our board members. And in a panel format, we're going to look at practically what do we do with what we know. So we feel like all the issues have been prosecuted to date. In other words, the, the package of guidance has been released. It's all being laid out. So given we've now got the ATO's position, how do we move on from that? And so I'll be having a brief roundtable discussion with them both about where we've landed and, and basically what we're doing now with the sort of guidance and record keeping and obligations and so on. But we're particularly going to go into a series of scenarios and we're going to be unpacking a number of the sorts of things I've been describing today, plus others, so that practitioners can get a feel for the ATO's perspective, but also from Leanne's perspective as a practitioner, what is the best way to approach this? What do you need to do to minimise your risk? What sort of record keeping would you need in place? And at the end of this, we've got some practical takeaways that hopefully will assist the, the delegates and our members who are attending. Robin Jacobson of the Tax Institute in Australia. So as soon as the distributions are not paid out in a timely manner or go to somebody else who wasn't presently entitled or the money comes back to the trust in some shape or form or some other funny business as you have seen in the B-Blood case and the Guardian case, then you need to consider Section 100A and read TR 2022-4 and PCG 2022-2. And neither of these are easy to read, by the way. And of course, in addition to Section 100A, of course, you also need to consider Part 4A. As you remember, the Guardian case was actually ruled on Part 4A and not Section 100A. But the B-Blood case was decided based on Section 100A. Now, the Section 100A presentations at the Tech Summit we mentioned during the talk are the presentation by Frank Hinoporis of Hall and Wilcox, and then followed by the panel discussion I asked Robin about. Now, before the interview, 
I asked Robin to tell me what role she has at the Tax Institute because you might remember last time you spoke with Robin in episode 145 and 146 about how tax law is made and in episode 260 about Division 7A dividends. Back then, Robin was still with TaxBenter, so I asked her about her role at the Tax Institute. Here's her answer. So I joined the Tax Institute in May of 2020. I had a a long career in tax training through multiple organizations across more than 20 years. My role at the Tax Institute as Senior Advocate is a key engagement and advocacy contact for our members, government, non-government organizations, regulators, and other stakeholders. So essentially, my role is to look after member engagement, the Tax Institute, and that involves presenting webinars, appearing at events and providing tax policy and advocacy updates. Um, also hosting the Tax Five podcast, very much involved in the weekly Tax Five newsletter that goes out to our members, media contact. But all these things are also supported by the Tax Policy and Advocacy team. And that is headed up by Scott Triot, who is our general manager of TPA, as well as Julie Abdella, who is our senior tax counsel. Tax File, is that a podcast done by the Tax Institute? Yes, it is. So Tax Vibe, V-I-B-E, just so you get that spelling right. So this is a podcast which we've been producing for nearly two years and we get a, a wide range of guests and we'll be doing some more episodes through Tax Summit, which is coming up very soon and also on an ongoing basis, but lots of interesting guests and, and predominantly our members. It's designed for members of the tax profession, but it's available on all the usual channels, so anyone is free to listen to it. And are you the host on TaxVibe? Yes, I am. So that was Robin Jacobson of the Tax Institute. So that is Tax Vibe. The important thing is to write Tax Vibe together as one word. I was looking for it, writing it in two words, and then it doesn't come up. So Tax Vibe, Tax V-I-B-E, all one word, then you find it. And I have subscribed. I will be a loyal listener. Just to give you a taste, the last episode is about companies versus trusts, the victor. Before that, true crime, tax and reform, oh my that sounds interesting. Then there is why your favorite color matters for your data security. Then there is tech sleepers for trust. I definitely want to read that. Then in episode 10, there's text time tips and so on. So give it a try. I definitely will listen to it. In the next episode, episode 402, we will go back to trust losses and speak with Ron Jorgensen of Thompson Gear in Melbourne about claiming losses within a trust. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.